0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisei.org. Thanks for listening. Gateless Gate, Case 31. Zhao Zhou saw through the old woman. The main case, a student asked an old woman, which way should I take to Mount Wutai? The old woman said, go straight on. When the student had taken a few steps, she remarked, he may look like a fine fellow, but he too goes off like that. Later, another student told Zhou about it. Zhaozho said, wait a while, I will go and see through that old woman for you. The next day he went and asked her the same question. The old woman too gave him the same reply. When he returned, Zhaozhou announced to his community, I have seen through the old woman of Mount Wutai for you. The commentary. The old woman knew how to work out a strategy and win the victory while sitting in her tent. Yet she is not aware of the bandit stealing into the tent. Old Zhaozhou is skillful enough to creep into the enemy's camp and menace her fortress. Yet he does not look like a grown-up. Upon close examination, they are both at fault. Now tell me, how did Zhaozhou see through the old woman? Capping verse The question is the same each time, the answer, too, is the same. In the rice, there is sand, in the mud, there are thorns. This weekend, we did a retreat on the eight uh, conditions of wisdom, a teaching that the Buddha gave to his monks in a sutra called the Prajna Sutra. And in many ways, these uh, eight conditions parallel the eightfold path and the six paramitas. And I won't go into into them, but I I wanted to uh, bring up a little bit, again, the first two, which are studying with a teacher and asking questions. And this second one, asking, is of course central to any spiritual path. The ability to ask, the ability to wonder, to look beyond what is currently visible. And this is what really propels a person toward a spiritual path, a spiritual search. And the fact is it doesn't necessarily manifest itself as a question through the many years that I sat on the, on the Guardian Council, you know, I spoke with people who wanted to either come into residency or to become students, and whose impetus to enter into practice was not formulated as a question. Maybe it was a kind of, of unease, uh, acknowledged, even though not fully identified. You know, A sense of things not being quite right, and the need to figure out why. Others just slide very smoothly into practice. You know, someone gives them an introductory retreat as a gift. And it's not that they themselves have necessarily a burning life question, but they come, they enjoy it, and they start sitting. Maybe they read a little bit about Zen, about Buddhism, and and it resonates. And so they continue sitting, and after a while they think, well, this is good, but now how do I go deeper? And maybe they do sishin, and it's painful, but they also... Something tells them they want to do more. And this was very much the case for me, my first... Though I did have questions, but in my first sishin, I did a a weekend seshin, July of 1995. And it must have been 100 degrees in here, which I loved. And... (laughs) And I remember sitting in line to... I can't remember if it was Doksan or if it was, at the time, Interview with Shugan. With um, and I, I'm sitting there in, in a pool of sweat and in excruciating pain. You know, I was running a bit at the time, and I was, just, I was not very flexible. I certainly wasn't used to sitting for a full day. And so it's an excruciating pain and thinking, this is, this is torture. And my next, my very next thought was, when can I do the next one? And, and that, uh, um, both, both were completely true in, in that moment. And it was very much like being carried by a stream. And it's just, it's flowing. And it's working. At a certain point, I, I felt this is, this is working. And so that may be the case. For some of us but I do think that at a certain point the question inevitably appears why am I doing this because the stream will only carry us so far at some point the current wanes and we have to start paddling at some point we each have to reckon with our intent our aspiration especially, especially in those moments when practice doesn't feel good It doesn't flow, quite the contrary. It feels hard, or it feels sputtery, or it's just downright dry. Or worse, pointless, it feels pointless. And if we're not clear about why we're doing it, we will stop. Which is perfectly fine, no one says we have to do this forever. But if we do want to do it, we're of course much more likely to do so if we know why. I have spoken before how in my own, my own journey I had a, a, a clear sense that there, there, just, there had to be more to life than what I was being told was important, what I was seeing. And, and I had a sense that I, I wanted to live a life that was uh, about more than just me. And I didn't even know what that meant, but it was a very strong feeling, uh, maybe of needing my life to matter to extend beyond my own uh, needs and wants. And so slowly I found my way to to Zen, and I first sat down, I think on on a folded pillow or a blanket at home, and began to count my breath. And I do remember thinking, even that first time, this is something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I found a refuge in Zazen, that I hadn't found anywhere else and that hasn't really dissipated. I think I've been very fortunate, even at those times when it's been hardest to do, that it feels uh, like water, like air, that, that basic of a sustenance. And I know that's not the case for everyone, so I'm, I'm extremely grateful that I do feel that way. But after sitting uh, on my own for a while, I, I felt, you know, I need, I need guidance. And I, wasn't, I certainly wasn't thinking about a teacher. I didn't know what that meant, what that would look like, where would I find one. I just wanted somebody to tell me if I was on the right track. And I was going to school in Philadelphia, and so I, I um, got a book that listed retreat centers, and the monastery was, was listed, and it looked good. And so I called and I asked. I, I called for to ask for a catalog. So I, I got the catalog in the mail and I signed up. Signed up for the introductory retreat. And as it was getting closer, I started to get nervous. I started to get cold feet. Um, and I remember calling a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and saying, "You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's money for me, which I did not have." And you know, it's this weekend, you know, and I kept looking at the pictures and I seen, you know, all these weird bold people. I don't know, you know what <laughs> and I can say that because I was bold myself <laughs> for a while. You know, it's like what is this what is this going to be? And uh, and she said to me, you know, you've been searching for a while. And so just go. And if this is not for you, then you'll just take the next step. You just take the next step in your journey. But what if it is? So I was afraid, which I think, frankly, in in one sense is the right response. It's not the only response, but it's the right response because you really don't have any idea how this will change your life. But if you start and if you're paying attention, you very quickly see that it will. And hopefully that is exactly what you want. Not to continue as you always have, but to be disrupted in the best possible way. And so I think at some point, you know, the questions do begin to come up. And it's important. It's important to turn to them and to ask them. And koan training is such a powerful tool, I've always felt, in teaching us how to ask. How to ask a question wholeheartedly with your whole being. And I used, I offered the image yesterday during the retreat of a, a very still, clear lake, in, where the water is so still that you can see all the way to the bottom, you can see every ripple, you can see every every movement, every rock, you know, every uh, flicker of light. And into this still body of water, you just you throw a little pebble, and as it hits the surface, you know, the ripples, of course, go out, and that's just the surface movement. That if you stay with it, it. it the pebble keeps going down and down and down and hits something at the bottom that now has the opportunity to come up. And because the water is still, you can actually see it. To me, that is very much eventually how I learned to, to ask a question, a true question. It needed, I needed that stillness because otherwise it was just the roiling of my mind and the stories of my mind and the movement of my mind. You also learn how to hone in on the pith of the question, of the problem, if you will. To sift through all the words in order to identify what is really being asked here. To learn the difference be- between what is actually there and what you're filling in with your mind, your assumptions, your opinions, your projections. And even, you know, so even if you take that outside of cons and you take it into your life, like how do you know you have an interaction with someone How do you know what is yours and what is theirs? How do you know what you're creating together? Which, of course, you always are. But how do you know what is true? Which is another way of saying, how do you see clearly? And as Roshi often says, you know, the koan presents exactly what you need to know. It gives you all the information you need in order to see it but it often seems so bare that we don't trust it. And the same is true of a life koan. The answer is often, very often, right in front of us, but it is so simple and so bare that we distrust it, and so we we build sandcastles over this smooth pebble, trying to make it more interesting, make it more palatable, more exciting. hopefully with time we learn to see the beauty of that smooth pebble and we realize that adding to it just takes away takes away from its beauty and that that is not even what the pebble is asking of us it just wants to be seen as it is if it wants anything that's built into its function into its nature to be seen as it is And just to balance things, I think this is also very true of Shikantaza, just sitting, very much sitting like at the edge of that lake or in front of a clear, bright mirror. And the the mind, your mind is stable and still as you watch the flow of thoughts. You watch what appears before you. So in this Koan, a student, is traveling to Mount Wutai in the northeastern part of China. And this was Mount Wutai was one of the four sacred mountains of China. And each one of these was considered to be a Bodhimanda, a seat of enlightenment for a great Bodhisattva. And Mount Wutai is the seat of Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. And since the beginning of the 7th century, pilgrims were traveling to Mount Wutai from India and and within China, to um, pay homage, to pay their respects to Manjushri. And a number of temples were built there. And so this koan takes place a couple hundred years later in the ninth, ninth century. And this particular pilgrim meets an old woman on the road. We don't know her name, and we don't really know her occupation. We don't know what she's doing. Likely, she was selling something like tea by the side of the road, or sandals, Maybe she was a pilgrim herself. But she was, she was there because this encounter was repeated over and over again. And really, all we know is that she's old, that she's a woman, as many of the, the nameless women in these koans uh, are and I was thinking, you know, you could, in a sense, you could um, perhaps make something, if you wanted to, make something of, of that in two ways. She's either an elder that's been steeped in the teachings of Zen with a long life of practice behind her, which the koans often show, or the fact that she's old is a kind of uh, expedient means. Because the student that, that she's meeting, because those interactions, um, then they don't, they don't have to grapple. We don't have to worry about their, their desire becoming their attraction to her or that they wouldn't feel so bad at being beaten by a female peer. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know why they're always identified as the old women on the road. Maybe they just really were. They just hung out by the side of the road <laughs> and had these encounters. What I do know is that she was not nameless. I do know that. And so after an instant of hesitation, I decided to give her a name. <clears throat> and I named her Shiji. And I made it up. And so it's a name that is used, um, but I made it up that it's for her, just as I made up what she looks like. I imagine her to be a very, very uh, wiry, tall, and thin, and very straight. Um, n- not an ounce of feebleness in her. And her voice is soft, but it's firm. It's not shaky. And uh, she has has hair, very short, uh, cropped around her, her face and eyes that sparkle. And her hands are surprisingly smooth for her age, and nobody knows what that is. And she's always wearing a hat, a big uh, hat with a broad brim, a straw hat. But when the pilgrims come and she's showing them the way, she takes it off and, and kind of waves to show them how to go straight on. Given, giving her a name, um, I fictitiously, but I've given her a life, a personality, a history. Because she matters. She counts because she will not be forgotten. And so this pilgrim meets her and asks a very um, practical question. Which way should I take to Mount Wutai? He thinks he's just asking for directions. She, on the other hand, has other things on her mind. And most likely, he sees an old woman. He does not think to himself, ah, a Zen master, Let me ask her a question. Let me test my understanding. Let me test her. He sees what he wants to see, and therefore he misses what is in front of him. And someone was saying yesterday, you know, anyone can be a teacher. Anyone can teach you, which is true, of course. But how often do we actually let that be true? How often do we reject a teaching when it does not look or sound the way we think it should, the way we want it to? And so she's not thinking about directions. She sees this up the student at a single glance. And she knows what he sees and what he doesn't see because it's written really all over him. He's broadcasting it loud and clear. And so she just responds very directly. Go straight on. Another translation says, go straight ahead. And he does just that, failing once again to wonder, to ask, to probe deeper. He just walks on ahead, goes on his way. And so she calls after him. He may look like a fine fellow, but he too goes off like that. And the koan doesn't say, but I wonder if any of them, in all the many times that she did this, this, if any of them turned back, if any of them wandered, went back to her and said, what do you mean? Who are you? The koan doesn't say. It, it is usually just, where, what is the way to Mount Wutai? Go straight ahead. They do. You look like a fine fellow. You too go on like that. Which very much sounds like a dismissal. She disapproves of him. Why? What should he have done to respond to her in a way that she wouldn't disapprove? You're standing there, and you ask this question. She responds to you, what would you say when she said, go straight on? And for some reason, this con was just um, reminding me, was bringing up a lot of memories of, of my, my early time here, and uh, one day I was at the Abassi. I think we were looking at Dadaroshi's lawn and just, you know, what we were going to... He wanted some grounds work done. And um, he points to a peony that was blooming, and he says, you know, people nowadays see this peony as if in a dream. Now, those of you who have done koan study know that this is a koan in the Blue Cliff Record. And, I mean, I just looked at him. I, I was like, I had no idea <laughs> what he, he was saying. And it clearly you know, showed in my face because he very quickly changed the subject and started talking about the lawn and, you know, and everything else. And it, it wasn't really... Um, I, I think it actually took me years to, to realize he was trying to figure out if there was anything <laughs> in front of him. Uh, and th- 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 there wasn't. I mean, I, had, I truly had no clue. <laughs> But he didn't give up, <laughs> luckily, and I don't. He he didn't do that again, you know, in, in that kind of more formal way with a with a with a formal koan. Although he would often do it, um, you know, to catch me unawares. A question that seemed I was asking an innocent question, and the answer that I replied now would have to spend several months, you know, just pondering. And this student probably, he may or may not know, he probably will know soon that this is how she always responds to people when they're, they're asking their way to Mount Wutai. And so eventually, eventually the word does get around, and one day a student tells Zhaozhou about it. The great master Zhaozhou, who was enlightened when he was 18, and then he spent 62 years studying Zen with various teachers, 40-something, uh, 40, 40 of those years with one teacher, with Nan Chuan. And then he, started, he went off on pilgrimage to, as he said, refine his understanding. And th- that first meeting with, with Nan Chuan, uh, I think, fits very nicely with this, with this um, first of the Eight Conditions of Wisdom, just meeting, meeting and studying with a teacher. So let me share it with you. Uh, When Zhaozhou first met Nanchuan, the master was lying in bed with a cold. And Nanchuan turns to him, he turns to the young monk and asks him, where have you been recently? And Zhaozhou said, at Zuiso, which means auspicious image. And Nanchuan says, well, did you see the auspicious image? Zhaozhou answers, I did not see the image, but I have seen a reclining Tathagata. Tathagata is another name for Buddha. And so this gets Nanchuan's attention. He gets up, he turns to face Zhaozhou and says, Do you already have a master that you're studying with? And Zhaozhou says, I have. Well, who is it? Zhaozhou comes very close to Nanchuan. He bows to him and he says, I am glad to see you so well in spite of such a severe cold. And with this statement, their relationship starts. And for the next 40 years, uh, Zhaozhou stays with Nanchuan until he dies. And then when he turned 80, he finally settled down in the town of Zhaozhou. That's where he got his name from, and that's where he began to teach. And it says that he lived until he was 120. And that, perhaps more tellingly, that he said that if there was a 100-year-old person uh, who wanted to study the Dharma, he would teach them. And if there was a 7-year-old who was capable of teaching the Dharma that Jaja would study with them. And when this koan takes place, he's already a revered teacher and he's the head of, of Bai Lin Monastery. And so he hears from this uh, student and maybe he's heard it from, from others that what the old woman has been doing. And so he says, well, let, let me go check her out. I will go see through her for you. And what does that even mean? It's a, it's a very unusual thing for a teacher to say. I'm going to go see what you have not seen, and then I'll come back, and then what? I'll tell you about it? I mean, this is the great Master Zhaozhou. What is he going to tell his students? We don't know. Maybe if, if anybody asked to go with him to see how he questioned... Shiji. Or maybe somebody did, and we're just not told that in the koan. But he goes and he asks exactly the same question that the other students asked, and she responds in exactly the same way that she did before. He returns to this monastery and declares, I've seen through the old woman for you. Of course, the question is, what did he see? And, you know, with these with these koans, you can't um, you can't work on them at a distance. You know, I've I've heard that there are groups who uh, do what um, some groups call uh, koan salons, where they will, will take a koan and then in a group you know discuss it. And I and I think you know there's there's um, there might be value to that, especially historically. Uh, to learn, you know, the language of koans, which is very much like learning a a new language. But you can't, um, you can't really see a koan. You have to be in it. You have to be with Shiji in front of you. You have to be her. You have to be this monk who's, who's in this pilgrimage, and maybe he's rushing to get to Mount Wutai and he sees this old woman on the road and asks for directions and she responds the way that she does. And then what do you do as you keep walking towards the pilgrimage? What is going on in your mind? What is going on in your mind if you're one of Zhaozhou's monastics and you're hearing that he's going to go check this old woman out and you're waiting to hear what happens when he comes back? You know, maybe the monks are placing bets is she going to defeat him? Is he going to defeat her? I mean, is she is she for real, or is she, um, you know, skillful? But that's all. What kind of person is she? Does she just sound like it, like she knows what's going on? And, and I mean, I would imagine that they would be on the edge of their seats. That they would be anxious. That they would want to be that they would be eager to know what it is that he sees. But also the fact that that are they just waiting for him to come and tell me? I mean, how many times I did want my teacher to just, just tell me, just tell me, why do you have to make it so hard? And he wouldn't, and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't, thankfully. So we can't Uh, we can't look at them, we can't see them from the outside. He does come back and he sees, I've seen through the old woman for you. And again, we don't know if anybody then stepped forward and said, what did you see? What happened? The only information we have is, he comes back, he says, I've seen through her for you. What do you do with that? What are you left with? Wei Wang, uh, who's one of the women in, in our uh, women's lineage, was a 12th century master, and she was known um, for her skill in debate and her intelligence and her deep study of the Dharma texts. And her, her posthumous name, which masters often had, was the great master Jing Shi. And she wrote a poem on this koan. It says, Tongue of Zhaozhou, Day after day, an old woman. Radiance of the urna canopies the earth, investigating and shattering with distinctive brilliance. Going back to that which knows no bounds is to enter calmly a state devoid of insight. And the urna is a, a curl of hair at the center of the forehead that the Buddha was said to, to have and, and to be. That it was a sign of his enlightenment. And from this spot, a piercing light emanates that drenches the whole universe with its brilliance. And as I was reading this, I was wondering, is she speaking of the Buddha himself, or is she speaking of Zhajo, or is she speaking of the old woman? And are they, are they really different? Investigating and shattering with distinctive brilliance. But then why does she say, that going back to that which knows no bounds, you enter into a state devoid of insight. If insight is what this whole thing is about, that's what we spend the day exploring yesterday, that all of these, these eight conditions are really the soil of wisdom, are for the purpose of cultivating insight, cultivating the ability to see things as they are. Wisdom is as, as the ability to see, to understand, to realize. And so, what's the point of entering a state of no insight? What is that good for? You know, if we're asking the right questions, hopefully, even more questions appear. But that doesn't mean you know we just we walk around befuddled. I think it actually is the opposite. It means we have finally begun to see. Um, In the commentary, it says, the old woman knew how to work out a strategy and win the victory while sitting in her tent. Yet she is not aware of the bandit stealing into the tent. Old Ziajo is skillful enough to creep into the enemy's camp and menace her fortress. I mean, that first part, I mean, really implies that she knows what she's doing in her little stall and that every time a student approaches her, she is victorious as they walk away. And she says, you too go on like that. I would like to turn that on its head and say that it's the students who've completely exposed her and she knows it. And I don't think she's at all concerned with victory or defeat. Why should she? She's walking on the ground of reality. She doesn't have time for games. This is not a game for her. And it's not a game for Zhaozhou either. And so maybe she knows who it is when he comes. Maybe she knows who it is who's stealing into her tent. Maybe she doesn't. It doesn't actually matter. Because she's still going to respond with the truth. Because that is what she does. That is her imperative. And to me, that is the, that's when that statement, anyone can teach you, anything can teach you, becomes true. When we uh, allow, when we give permission to reality to teach us, then that is exactly what it does. It's not that, the, that, it, that, it can be, that it has a switch where it turns on and off and sometimes things are revealed as they are and sometimes they're not. It's just sometimes we're able to see it. Sometimes we're not able to see it. And then woman says, well, they are both at fault. Shiji Xij, and Zhaozhou, but what is their fault? And this is... A, a, a phrase that is very often, um, it very often appears in the koans. A teacher pours their guts out, and somebody says, the commentator says, they're at fault. Why? What is the fault? And of course, the main question still remains what did Zhaozhou see? And I think. Um, you know, I think when we struggle, I, mean, I think of all the years, once again, in my own practice, all the years in which I struggled with practice, the struggle to, to see a koan clearly. I didn't understand that I didn't know this new way of seeing, that that was really what was being asked of me, to learn to see differently. And so all of my frustration at, at, at being, uh, you know, quote-unquote, um, disapproved of. It had nothing to do with anything. It had nothing to do with that, approval or disapproval. I just didn't know how to see in that way yet. And that is why it takes time, and that is why there's so many, there's so many cons, because you see it, and then you get it very briefly, and then you forget, and then you have to see it again, and then you have to see it again, and then you have to see it again, until hopefully at some point you don't forget. In Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard says, When I see closely, I analyze and pry. I hurl over logs and roll away stones. I study the bank a square foot at a time, probing and tilting my head. Some days when a mist covers the mountains, when the muskrats won't show and the microscope's mirror shatters, I want to climb up the bank, blank blue dome as someone would storm the inside of a circus tent wildly dangling, and with a steel knife, claw a rent in the top, peep, and if I must, fall." She has such a, an incredible way with words. We have to be willing to take a risk in order to see clearly. You know, I was saying that how, for, for how long I was so concerned with how I appeared how I thought I appeared to my teacher. And I was so afraid to ask because I didn't want to, to look like I didn't know. I didn't know. And he knew that. <laughs> so why was I worried about it? But I was worried about it. I thought maybe I could hide it. Like this student, you know, we broadcast ourselves constantly. Constantly. And um, it, it took... Longer than I want to admit, to let go of that, you know, to trust that what was happening um, in in that meeting, in that interaction, that that intimate encounter, you know, with my teacher, was um, his deep desire for me to actually see in this new way. That he didn't care if I didn't see at that moment. He wasn't concerned. I guess is what I should say. He wasn't concerned that at that moment I didn't see because he seemed to trust that I would, eventually. Especially at those times when I was most convinced that I wouldn't. And so eventually, eventually, I began to trust something. And I remember both in, 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 in very different ways, but in, Shugen, uh, in Dada Roshi's face, and then in Shugen Roshi's face, Dada Roshi was more like, no, you know, go back and really leave you to yourself. And there was still, I could see a, a kind of concern in his face, a kind of um, um, tenderness, you know, of him, of him really kind of saying, you know, you, you, you can do this. You just have to stay with it. You just have to stay with it. Don't um, get impatient and don't revert to what you've always done. And it is a risk, definitely. You know, to, to be willing to rip open that cocoon that has kept us safe, but also has kept us bound for so long. And if we fall, we fall. We fall, but better to, stand still, better to fall than to stand still with weeds you know, growing around your feet and vines uh, climbing up your legs and your torso. So there, it is a risk. It is a perilous journey in many ways, no question about it. Because every time we ask, we do expose ourselves. But as I said, you know, even before we ask, even if we don't ask, we've exposed ourselves. So we might as well take a risk, be wild and, and daring, and see what comes of it, what's on the other side of that tent. And Dillard also said, I cannot cause light, the most I can do is try to put myself in the path of its beam. But since that beam reaches everywhere, that shouldn't be too hard. And still, we have to know that that's where we're resting, in the midst of all of that light. For more talks... To get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit vanessa-zwisée-goddard.org.